Today, uh, as we continue working through the gospel of Mark, we come to um, perhaps one of the most difficult chapters in the gospel, just in terms of understanding it and grasping what it's saying. And so you are the lucky ones. You get to work through this with me. Um, and, uh, you know, elders, be on your toes in case I, uh, you know, drift into heresy. You can correct me later. Um, and, uh, and we'll make sure to clean up that mess later. Uh, but everyone, uh, as we're getting into this, and uh, I'm going to read the, the passage in just a second, um, we need to get our hearts and minds ready as we're, um, as we're hearing this scripture. Uh, I think that, that what Jesus had to say to his disciples here uh, in, in his last week in Jerusalem about the end times has much to say to us today. So I'm going to be silent for a moment. Just take, take some deep breaths, ask the Lord to prepare your heart, and then uh, we'll hear all of Mark chapter 13. Now, as Jesus was going out of the temple courts, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look at these tremendous stones and buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to take place? Jesus began to say to them, Watch out that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. You must watch out for yourselves. You will be handed over to councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. First, the gospel must be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over for trial, do not worry about what to speak, but say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will hand over brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, <laughs> Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the roof must not come down or go inside or take anything out of his house. The one in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing their, their babies in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter, for in those days there will be suffering unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the creation that God created until now or ever will happen. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But because of the elect whom he chose, he has cut them short. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. Be careful, I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see that the Son of Man or everyone will see the Son of Man arriving in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send his angels, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this parable from the fig tree. Whenever the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also you, when you see these things happening, know that he is near right at the door. I I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until these things take take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But as for that day or hour, no one knows it. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Watch out. Stay alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. He left his house and put his slaves in charge, assigning to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Stay alert then, because you do not know when the owner of the house will return, whether during evening at midnight when the rooster crows, or at dawn, or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly. What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit will come and help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to repent, help us to watch, help us to be ready, help us to obey and be transformed by your words. So have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say little uh, Lofo's crying is very appropriate for this sermon, so perfect. Uh, Nice, nice work. Um, That's great. Uh, You guys have just heard the longest speech that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Mark. The longest one. Mark only includes two long speeches, and this is the longer of the two. And and it is challenging, Uh, right? I mean, was it challenging? Okay, yeah, nodding, good, thank you. So before we get into it, I want to just remind us of a couple things that should help us understand it. We got to keep the big picture in mind. First thing, remember who Mark originally wrote this gospel for. He He wrote this gospel most likely for believers in Rome who were being persecuted in the time of Nero. They were being used for sport in the Colosseum. We have to remember this because Jesus' words about all of this trouble happening and and the persecution and, and everything else, they are troubling if you are living in relative comfort. 
but they're actually very encouraging if you are going through things that feel a lot like what he describes here. Okay, so we need to keep in mind who uh, who he Mark was originally writing for. Um, if if you are going through this kind of trouble, these words would probably bring you peace more than fear. That's the first thing. The second thing, like I said, this is the longest speech in the Gospel of Mark. Mark, throughout, wants us, the readers of his Gospel mostly to pay attention to Jesus's actions. We follow where he goes and who he's with and the miracles that he does and the exorcisms, mostly. But just a couple places, he includes long speeches. And, and this speech seemed important enough to, the, the, to Mark that he included it and, and not other speeches of Jesus that we would take as very important, like I don't know, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not in the Gospel of Mark, right? This one is. So pay attention. Third, a really important detail to follow if you're studying Mark is who Jesus is talking to. In any given scene, Mark, Mark includes details about who he's talking to. For example, every time, practically every time, a crowd is mentioned in Mark, Jesus avoids it. He doesn't like crowds. He would like this church today a lot more than a, a megachurch. <laughs> Sorry to all our brothers and sisters in megachurches. That came out uh, judge, judging. But, you know, small crowd, Jesus tends to be drawn to a group like this. Some of the most ex uh, significant moments in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus pulls just what, what we often call his inner circle together. It's usually three guys, Peter, James, and John. This time, Peter's brother Andrew gets to tag along as well. Um, so uh, if you've been following my teaching on Mark, you might be interested to know that there are exactly four times in the gospel that Jesus pulls that specific group together. Well, the three. Andrew, again, is added on this time. This is the third of those times. You know, the first time he took them with him to raise a young girl from the dead. The second time he took them with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, this is the third time. And the fourth time he'll invite them to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are important details for us to keep in mind. Those moments are hugely significant moments. Therefore, we should pay attention all the more. And this type of speech, I'll be honest, oftentimes in end times stuff in the Bible, I just kind of, I, I hear those stuff about, well, you don't know. You don't know. Not even the sun knows. And I, so often I just like tune out. And I don't know if you're with, with me on that. Like if someone says, don't worry about it, I don't worry about it. Um, and mentally, I worry in other ways. Okay, enough background. Let's get to the main event. This is Jesus's big end times speech. It, uh, a very similar version of it is in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. And he, he names something right up front in his speech that we need to hear. For anyone who's paying attention at any time, the world seems like it's falling apart. Right? I mean, all just subscribe, you know, to a daily news update from, from, 
you know, five or six various news sources, local and national, global. It, the world seems like it's falling apart at any given point. All right, the end seems near. Jesus recognizes that. So I'd like to uh, attempt, as we're looking at this sermon, uh, sorry, his speech, his sermon, my sermon about his sermon, too many words, sermon there. Um, I want to answer two questions for us, two questions today. One, what is he saying? <laughs> and two, what do we do in light of what he's saying? He actually answers both questions. What is he saying and what do we do in light of what he's saying? So what is he saying? This whole speech happens after Jesus' buddies, his disciples, are just attempting to admire the sights in Jerusalem. They see the big giant temple and the huge stones. It was truly one of the architectural wonders of the world. If it was still standing, it would just, it would still blow our minds. And they're admiring the great stones. And Jesus takes that opportunity to make a prediction that the temple will be destroyed, not one stone left on the other. That's very unsettling to anyone, especially a Jewish person who sees the temple as evidence that God is with his people. So they ask the natural question, when, when will this happen, Lord? The speech is kind of an answer to that question. It's really more like an answer to the question that I think they should have asked. Right? They ask, when will it happen? And that's the one thing Jesus definitely does not tell them in the speech. He doesn't tell them. He says he doesn't know. They can't know. Okay. As Jesus describes, though, these things, which become cosmic in scale, they seem to refer to the end of history. No surprise, he describes them in four waves. Four waves. But I, I want to be careful as I'm talking about four waves. We hear waves and we think uh, things happening in, in order. First the first one, then the second one, then the third one. Each of these waves are things that, um, uh, well, many of these waves are things that are ongoing, that, happen, that have, were happening in Jesus' day and have happened ever since. So, Four waves, all right? Let, this is, I'm going to try to help us uh, kind of organize and understand Jesus' speech. The first wave here, and, and okay, good. The first wave is what he calls the beginning of the birth pains. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's natural disasters. Um, now, we hear the beginning of birth pains, and we automatically think, you know, um, the the woman is going into labor, right? The beginning of the birth pains. But, um, you know, the, the human body is the same in the 21st century as it was in the first century. All throughout a pregnancy, there are birth pains. They're actually, you know, we call them Braxton Hicks now. It's, you know, the like these these little warning contractions that are actually the, the woman's body preparing for labor. And so as Jesus is talking about the beginning of the birth pains, I think it's probably better for us to think of it in those ways. It doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, it's happening today, but rather there's a preparation that's happening in the creation. Now, the things seem 
scary. Wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters. Here's the good news. Jesus describes them not as the beginning of the death pains, but as the beginning of the birth pains. There is hope written into his words. If we don't have any hope, the wars and rumors of wars, the disasters that come, the fires that burn, they are uh, things that cause despair in us. But if we understand them as God getting his creation ready for that great and glorious day, we, we interpret them with hope. We're not shaken and disturbed by them. Their preparation. So this wave, this first wave, it was happening in Jesus' day, and it has been crashing on the shores of history ever since, right? Okay. Second wave. The second wave is persecution of Jesus' followers connected to their proclamation of the gospel. All right, so he says, this gospel must be preached in every nation. And around that, he's talking about, you know, you'll be handed over to governments. Your, your family will betray you even to the point of death. Now, again, there's good news in this second wave. The Holy Spirit plans to use every part of that, even the scariest moments of persecution. When you're brought before the authorities, you're, you're before the, the, uh, the, you know, the firing squad, and the Holy Spirit still in that moment will speak through you. What great news for Jesus' followers. He'll give you the words to say. There's purpose even in that. Third wave involves this thing called the abomination of desolation. We need to spend a little bit more time on this one. The abomination of desolation. Doesn't that just sound terrifying? <laughs> what a name. I mean, gosh, why isn't there a horror movie by that, by that name? The abomination of desolation. Maybe there is. Um, so this Whatever that is, it happens, and then it's followed by an urgent set of instructions to flee from Judea without delay. Like, don't even, if you're on your house, take the, the exterior stairs and don't even go inside to pack. Just get out of there. Pray that you're not, you know, pray that it's not winter. You know, woe to nursing mothers. It, oh, man, wow. It is, he, he says, that abomination of desolation will trigger the worst suffering in, in cosmic history. What? I mean, that's terrifying, right? He says it will, God will mercifully cut it short for, as he says, the sake of the elect. But my goodness. Okay, what are we talking about here? Mark says, let the reader understand. So you probably already do. <laughs> um, whenever I see that phrase, I'm like, Mark, you thought we would understand. Okay, so, all right. That phrase, the abomination of desolation, comes from the prophet Daniel, all right? And um, the most common, most scholars and, and Bible students point to this next verse, Daniel 9, 27. Um, so you see there this, on the wing of abominations will come one who destroys. That's at the end of 927. Um, John Calvin, interestingly, says, he's, I agree with John Calvin. Why does everyone point to Daniel 9 when in Daniel 12, we have this verse, this next verse from 
uh, you can put, yeah, from the, uh, the time that the daily sacrifice is removed and the abomination that causes desolation is set in place, there are 1,290 days. I'm not going to attempt to explain Daniel's use of numbers and days today. Don't worry. Okay, so what, all right, so Daniel prophesied this thing in his visions. Jesus mentions it again. What's interesting is most Jews in Jesus' days thought that it had already happened. They thought that about a hundred and, and so maybe 180 years before Jesus is saying this, there was this event in the year 167 um, BC. Sorry, my math was terrible there. But um, where this, uh, this invading king, Antiochus Epiphanes, came into the temple, sacrificed a, a pig on the altar to one of his gods. That, that triggered a time of great suffering for the Jewish people. So now Jesus is mentioning, mentioning it again. Like, wait a minute. Well, but that already happened, Jesus. So, okay, um, what, what is, what's he talking about? Um, what's going on? Uh, the temple, after all, was restored. The sacrifices resumed. Um, Mark was writing this probably in the early 60s. Mark didn't yet know that the temple was going to be destroyed in the year 70 AD. So a lot of scholars say, well, gosh, that must be it. The temple was destroyed in the year 70, so the daily sacrifices had to stop. There were a lot of events leading up to that that could probably qualify as the abomination of desolation. Other people say not even that is drastic enough to match what Jesus is saying here. Think about the type of suffering that he's describing. It must be the end of days. He must be talking about, you know, the great tribulation that's coming at the end of days before the victorious return of Christ. And, okay, so those are some options. And then some scholars just say, hey, why not let it be all of them? That's how biblical prophecies work. You know, a prophet sees this thing in the future, but it's also referring to this thing, and it's also referring to this thing. Yeah, that's probably right. And now, um, elders, be on alert, and everyone be on alert, because I'm going to give you another idea. And um, it may be some someone may have written this idea somewhere, but I didn't find it, and so you should all be really, really cautious when you hear me say that, um, that I came up with something that I didn't find anywhere. Seriously, be cautious. Okay. Based on Daniel's words in chapter 9, um, this abomination uh, happens in these days. He, he describes this thing. Seventy weeks have been determined concerning your people and your holy city to put an end to rebellion, to bring sin to completion, to atone for iniquity, and bring in perpetual righteousness. That's interesting. That's the buildup to the first time he's talking about the abomination. And then uh, if you look in Daniel chapter 12, then, um, uh, um, so forgive my uh, typos there. Many will be purified, made clean, and refined, but the wicked will go on being wicked. None of the wicked will understand, though the wise will understand. What's going on here? Daniel, that, that's right before Daniel says the phrase, abomination that causes desolation. What is going on? Jesus says that the abomination of desolation will lead to the worst suffering in history. Well, what, I ask, could bring an end to sin and iniquity? Could, could, 
could uh, uh, cause many to be purified and made clean and refined. What, what could be greater suffering than all of God's wrath for all of sin landing on one person at one time? I wonder, friends, if the abomination that causes desolation, the sacrifice that according to the book of Hebrews brings an end to daily sacrifices, is Jesus' death. I, you know, so again, grain of salt, I didn't find that somewhere, but, but Jesus' death is the perfect, complete sacrifice. We look at his death and we say, that's what gives us hope, that's what gives us righteousness, that's what washes away our sin. It's worth considering. Now, if that's what Jesus means, there's other parts in his speech that don't quite fit, all right? So, um, again, we should keep working on this stuff. Right. But the abomination of desolation, that's the third wave. Now, the fourth wave. The fourth wave is the tsunami to end it all. Cosmic destruction ensues. The sun and the moon go dark. The stars fall. The Son of Man arrives on a cloud in glory. Jesus seems to be talking about the great and glorious end, the, the return of the Son of Man, uh, the return of Christ in victory, and everyone will see and everyone will be gathered together uh, at the judgment throne, and a, a victory celebration will follow. All right. That's what Jesus says will happen. They ask, when will it happen? And he says, what will happen? Fine. But what do we do in light of all of that? Like, how, how, do, we how do we carry that knowledge around? Um, uh, we'll start at the end of his speech, and then we'll circle back to the beginning. The last thing Jesus says is he gives a little lesson using a tree. He uses a fig tree. Any deciduous tree will do, all right? He says when we're looking at a tree, you know, we in Colorado get this. At, during the spring, you can see the, the branches and the leaves begin to change. You can see summer is on its way. He's saying the signs will fit together. They'll make sense, and we'll see that these things are near, all right? So pay, pay attention, all right? But then in the middle of that statement about the fig tree, he drops this line that has caused a lot of trouble for believers. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he's talking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who are dead now. And a lot of those things have not yet taken place. Was he wrong? <laughs> In fact, many scholars throughout history have said, yeah, Jesus thought it was going to happen, and it didn't happen, and so he was wrong. Um, I hope it doesn't surprise you, but I'm not going to follow that line. I don't think he was wrong. Um, you know, other people say, you know, um, hold on, everything Jesus said would happen did. For the most part, there are wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes. There's been plenty of persecution. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. A lot of these things did happen. So, and, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew saw all of that. So, all right, he wasn't entirely wrong. It's just this bit about the sun and moon and global cosmic destruction, that the Son of Man coming on clouds. That's the hang-up there. Well, here's the deal. We get tunnel vision pretty easily. We read 
with our own way of speaking and our own way of thinking, and we forget that we need to hear Jesus on his own terms, all right? So, right after he says this phrase about this generation will not pass away, he says this thing, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, so when Jesus is saying pass away, he's not being, you know, somebody who's afraid to use the word dead, which is how we use pass away. Oh, he passed away. You know, we're, we're nervous about talking about death, right? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He doesn't use pass away anywhere else to refer to death. He uses pass away to refer to something that vanishes out of existence, and he's saying right after that, my words won't pass away. Just like he said, this generation won't pass away. If we're being really, really literal, we have that generation preserved with his words in Scripture. It's weird that we know Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Right? Like, these are just some random Jewish guys that happen to follow Jesus around. They weren't very even good at it. And we know, like, we, we have followed their lives. We have studied them. They haven't, in, in that sense, they haven't passed away. That's one way to think about it. But if we're being really literal, we need to remember that, that earlier that same day, the Sadducees came and they wanted to prove that there's no resurrection. And Jesus gives this speech about God isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. And he's, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who haven't passed away. They still exist. In Jesus' theology, he knows, of course, that generation won't pass away. Even if we're trying to think in terms of life and death. All right? So, so Jesus isn't saying that these things would happen in Peter's lifetime. He's saying that these things, all these things that happen, would not destroy his followers any more than global destruction could destroy his words. He's giving them and us a hope that is bigger than the world. The effect of these words should be hope for us. All right, so this gets us now to what do we do? What do we do in light of what Jesus says? If, if you follow this speech, there's a lot of the signs and things that we can get um, distracted by. But Jesus can't get two sentences out without giving a very clear instruction. And guys, Jesus doesn't actually give really um, tangible directions that often. He usually speaks in stories. But throughout this speech, he's saying some very clear things. So, and he repeats himself a lot. So I, I'm going to summarize it down into five things. And this is where we'll finish. Okay, five clear instructions. Two don'ts and three do's, all right? Two don'ts and three do's. So, Lord, help us obey these things. Quickly, number one, don't trust a so-called Messiah. Don't be taken in or, or deceived by false leaders. Anytime a leader of any kind, a political leader, a pastor, a speaker, an author, a celebrity, or anyone else claims to have the exclusive ability to bring about peace, prosperity, and goodness to restore what's broken, we need to, like, that should send all of our flags up. 
If someone's running for president and they say, only I can do, only I can save this nation. That should send all of our flags up. Don't trust a so-called Messiah. Now, God can use political leaders and individuals and organizations for good things, but none of them are the Savior or the Messiah. They will not save you. For example, one of our dreams as a church is to have the privilege eventually to walk alongside people in very practical, very consistent ways as they are wrestling with and seeking freedom from addictions. That's something that we are praying for. That's something we believe God's going to do in our next location or when we get settled in our long-term location. If we or anyone else claim, however, that we and only we have the power to deliver someone from an addiction, if we say that our program is the only one that works, if we as a church say, this is the one true church, you've got to be part of us because the others are wrong about stuff, flee. Like flee. Like the people in Judea. Don't even pack. Leave your bulletins behind. Okay? Like you usually do. (laughs) Okay. Don't, even a church or pastor, if they claim to have exclusive ability to save you through their programs, through anything other than Jesus himself, it's a false Messiah, okay? Don't be taken in. Number two, all right, I said quickly and I wasn't. Number two, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. That's when we get deceived, when we get overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Jesus' speech was supposed to give us hope and peace, no matter what is happening around us. If we hear Jesus well, we don't make too much or too little of global events. All right? We don't make too much of them. This is it! You know, Russia's got too much power. China's got too much power. Whatever. You know, I... Nations are surrounding Jerusalem. Don't make too much of those events. And don't make too little of them. Follow along, all right? Um, We need to keep our eyes open, but in hope and in peace. I wonder if Peter was reflecting on these words. Hi, kids. Come on in and find your parents, okay? I wonder if Peter was reflecting on these words when he wrote uh, a, a few decades later that we should not fear what our neighbors fear, but instead always be ready to give an answer about the hope that we have within. Right? We have hope even when the world is in trouble. Okay, third thing. Do watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. When he reminds us of persecution, he leads with this phrase, watch out for yourselves, watch yourselves. A generation later, Paul would be speaking to elders in, the, in, a, in a church in Ephesus, and he would tell them, hey, savage wolves will come in and mislead the flock and destroy them. Oh, and those savage wolves are among you or in you. We have the... the, the <laughs> The people who will betray other people, they're staring back at us in the mirror. Watch yourselves. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. You want to know when the gnarliest details of your heart comes out? 
It's when your family is having trouble. It's when your family is turning against each other. That's what, that's what shakes us to our very core. All sorts of, of psychological and behavioral um, research proves that, actually. That's when we do the wildest things, when our family is having trouble. Well, you think a family betraying one another to death qualifies as trouble? I think so. Number four, now we get it, uh, um, second of the do's. Do be alert and ready at a moment's notice. I'll simply say, Lord, have mercy on all of the ways we distract ourselves. Like I said, if you're paying attention, the world feels like it's always ending. You know how we deal with that? We stop paying attention, right? Like, I'll just watch another episode of this nice, happy sitcom. That'll help me feel better. I'll just have another drink. That'll help me feel better. Lord, have mercy on all the ways we numb and distract ourselves, all the ways we get attached to the things of this world. We need to be ready to leave them all behind at a moment's notice. And finally, know that he's near. Know that he's near even now. By his spirit, he is near to us. And nothing is left to be done. Nothing is left to be done. We don't know when he'll come, and we're not supposed to and you can tune out when someone says they figured it out. You should. <laughs> okay, we don't know when he'll come. Instead, we get to live with hopeful, joyful expectancy. So, church, whether his death was, in fact, the abomination of desolation, or whether that means something else, we can look to his death and have hope. We can. The Son of God has satisfied the wrath of God, and has made us pure in his death. Our orientation has shifted. Now the troubles of this world are not punishment on our sin, but preparation for the glorious future. Do you see the different way we can look at the world now? These are not punishments, they're birth pains. They're opportunities for us to show the love and compassion of the one who died on our behalf, we can enter into the gnarliest situations with hope and love and courage because that's what Jesus did. Jesus did not give this speech to scare us, but to give us peace. So we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, in this moment, make our hearts ready. Lord, make our hearts ready. Lord, set us free from the things that distract us from you and what you're doing. Open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Lord, let us not be people who live in fear and anxiety, but people who live in hope and peace, no matter what is happening around us. So that we can enter in and bring your love and your compassion in every moment. Lord, let us show the world what you're like all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.